0: cool we're live welcome everybody to week six is this is week six in review i think so not only is it week six in review at theory underground but i'm going to make good on the promise that i talked about last week which was we're gonna we're gonna read from uh Hunter Rant's "Men in Dark Times, the speech, essay, article, whatever this is, where she basically is saying, like, Carl Jaspers is fucking awesome. Let me tell you about it, okay? And I just love that because she's making my job easier for me as somebody who thinks that um, Jaspers is one of the most important figures in existentialism who tends to get left out of courses that introduce the topic or subject or field or questions of existentialism as well as you know left out of the higher echelons of the theory world discussion. So welcome everybody my name is David McCarriger and this is Theory Underground. I am your host today. In the background we are In the background, we are being being joined uh, by Anne and Andrew, Andrew, the big Signorelli himself, aka Master Signified Bodies, as well as Anne, my partner, fiance, and then uh, Nance. Nance is also here with us. Welcome, Andrew. I was just... Uh, announcing that the stream is now launched, and I'm about to read from Men in Dark Times, but before we get going, we'll be talking a little bit today about the complications that Anne and I have run into uh, with trying to live in Mexico for a few months. Uh, We talked about it a little bit last week. There's, well, there's more info on that, but we'll talk about that in a bit after the speech. And then, yeah, everyone else, just uh, sit back, enjoy yourselves, do whatever the heck you want while you listen in on this live exegetical reading. Now, some of the exegetical readings I do are not live. Some of them are for my patrons only, and then I upload pieces of those after the fact. Um, you know, like a sort of like edited down, streamlined, maybe like key excerpt kind of clip after the fact. Um patrons are able to get access to the backlog of exegetical readings from essential texts for Theory Underground. Uh, and maybe I'll play a little bit of that later on. But for right now, we're just going to get right into it. And yeah, this one's live. So welcome, everybody. Honor Rent, the famous a student of Martin Heidegger who went in a completely different direction than most of the people who studied phenomenology and existentialism in the 20th century. She says, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a political theorist. And for her, that was very important. And it's crucial to understanding her entire project. But Men in Dark Times is an interesting text. It's one that I really like a lot uh, because there's not a lot like it. It's like a whole book of her saying, look, none of these people are ideologically the same. They all kind of have their own different backgrounds. Like Rosa Luxemburg is in there. Rosa Luxemburg is a communist. And Hannah Rent is not a communist. But nevertheless, Hannah Rent's like, no, Rosa Luxemburg was one of the leading lights in dark times. Well, alongside people like Luxemburg and Jaspers and Brecht, uh, sorry, alongside Luxemburg, Brecht, and others like Lessing, we have Carl Jaspers. And actually, there's two chapters in here about him. And since this is sort of the year of Carl Jaspers, since we've kicked off the Theory Underground courses with the idea of the university course, I figured, let's just, let's do it. Let's let's read what it's it's called, Carl Jaspers, a Laudatio. What is a la- Laudatio? It's like, a speech in praise of someone. Let's get into it. We have assembled here for the presentation of the Peace Prize. That prize, if I may recall a phrase used by the President of the Federal Republic, is awarded not only for excellent literary work, but also for having proved oneself in life. It is awarded, therefore, to a person and awarded for the work insofar as it still remains the spoken word which is not yet broken free from the speaker to begin its uncertain, always adventurous course through history. For this reason, the award of this prize must be accompanied by the Laudatio, a eulogy whose task it is to praise the man rather than his work. How to do this, we can perhaps learn from the Romans, who more experienced in matters of public significance than we are, tell us what such an enterprise should be all about. And then there's some Latin here that she translates as, In eulogies, the sole consideration is the greatness and dignity of the individuals concerned. In other words, a eulogy concerns the dignity that pertains to a man insofar as he is more than everything he does or creates. To recognize and to celebrate this dignity is not the business of experts and colleagues in a profession, It is the public that must judge a life which has been exposed to the public view and proved itself in the public realm. The award only confirms what this public has long known. The Laudatio, therefore, can only attempt to express what you all know. But to say in in public what many know in the seclusion of privacy is not superfluous. The very fact that something is being heard by all Confers upon it an illuminating power that confirms its real existence. Still, I must confess that I have taken upon myself this venture into the public realm and its limelight with hesitation and timidity. I feel as I presume the great majority of you do. We are all modern people who move mistrustfully and awkwardly in public. Caught up in our modern prejudices, we think that only the objective work, separate from the person, belongs to the public that the person behind it and his life are private matters and that the feelings related to these subjective things stop being genuine where i lost my spot how did that just happen stop yeah i'll just reread the sentence
1: hey dave yeah while your pot pa- while your pause a second andrew made a comment that your mic is kind of staticky sounding it's for it's the same for me too
0: Oh, that's really good to know. Thank you. Da 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 testing, testing, testing. Is this any better? Is this any better? How's that? Talk a little bit more. All right. Testing my microphone, talking. I'm talking. Is it still staticky, staticky? Yeah. It's a little staticky.
1: It's not like that bad. Just like, like it's really not distracting or anything to the reading.
0: Why is it doing that? That sounds really good. That sounds really good. That sounds really good to you. All right. Yes. Cool. All right. Let's get back into it. So thank you, by the way, for uh, saying that. And yeah, anytime I'm not, I'm not going to have eyes on chat. So you just got to interject by voice if you want. It's no big deal. If you interrupt me still, I must confess that I have taken upon myself this venture into the public realm, which is like, she's quoting Jaspers there and its limelight with hesitation and timidity, I feel as I presume the great majority of you do. We are all modern people who move mistrustfully and awkwardly in public. Caught up in our modern prejudices, we think that only the objective work, separate from the person, belongs to the public. That the person behind it and his life are private matters and that the feelings related to these subjective things stop being genuine and become sentimental as soon as as soon as they are exposed to the public eye when the german book trade decided that there had to be a laudatio at the awarding of the prize it was really harking back to an older and more proper sense of the public realm a sense that it is precisely the human person in all his subjectivity who needs to appear in public in order to achieve full reality if we accept this new old, if we accept this new old sense we must change our views and forsake our habit of equating personal with subjective, objective with factual or impersonal. Those equations come from the scientific disciplines where they are meaningful. They are obviously meaningless in politics, in which realm people on the whole appear as acting and speaking persons and where, therefore, personality is anything but a private affair. But these equations, also lose their validity in public intellectual life which of course includes and goes considerably beyond the sphere of academic life i should add that the, re- the way the word personality is being used here is in a much broader sense than how it is typically used in american standard english uh, personality in this sense is to say it's a lot more like character than personality personality is like how you seem it's how you come off Whereas personality in this more existential sense has to do with like the self that has been cultivated and that is being developed, right? And it's not reducible to its identity, has a lot more to do with how its potential in its human sense has been actualized. Obviously, it's going to be hard from some outside perspective to really tease apart the difference between this broader richer sense of personality and the way that that just kind of means like how you feel about a person or whatever but I'm just saying yeah she doesn't really care so much about oh he's a nice guy that's not what she means in order to speak to the point here we must learn to distinguish not between subjectivity and objectivity but between the individual and the person it is true that it is an individual subject who offers some objective work to the public abandons it to the public The objective element, let us say, the creative process that went into the work, does not concern the public at all. But if this work is not only academic, if it is also the result of having proved oneself in life, a living act and voice accompanies the work, the person himself appears together with it. What then emerges is unknown to the one who reveals it. He cannot control it, as he can control the work he has prepared for publication. Anyone who consciously tries to intrude his personality into his work is play-acting, and in so doing he throws away the real opportunity that publication means for himself and others. Personal element is beyond the control of the subject and is therefore the precise opposite of mere subjectivity. But it is that very subjectivity that is objectively much easier to grasp and much more readily at the disposal of the subject. By self-control, for example, we mean simply that we are able to lay hold of this purely subjective element in ourselves in order to use it as we like. Okay, what is she saying here? The personal element is beyond the control of the subject and is therefore the precise opposite of mere subjectivity, right? So subjectively, you are able to write an essay and publish it for everyone to read and you have a lot of control over what it is that they read because you are able to change the product before they see it in the public. But as far as you are concerned, your reputation is not fully in your hands, I think is what she's saying. But it is the very subjectivity that is objectively much easier to grasp and much more readily at the disposal of the subject. Okay. This is all tied up in her theory of the public, which is a kind of a response to and critique of how Heidegger makes sense of Das Mann or the normative general so, uh, situation, background situation in a society, the sort of social big other. She uh, She wants to see it as not just something where things are flattened out and turned into simulations. She also wants to see how there's always like this potential for someone to actually say something that gets at truth in a way that has a real impact and, uh, is able to change things, you know, because it happens. It's, it is possible. It is one of the virtual capacities of all political situations. Um, but of course her book, the human condition is a huge critique of, of, uh, most politics and basically saying the, the, the chances of this really occurring are, are rare. Personality is an entirely different matter. It is very hard to grasp and perhaps most closely resembles the Greek daemon, guardian spirit which accompanies every man throughout his life but is always only looking over his shoulder with the result that it is more easily recognized by everyone a man meets than by himself. This daemon, which has nothing demonic about it, this personal element in a man, can only appear where a public space exists. That is the deeper significance of the public realm, which extends far beyond what we ordinarily mean by political life. To the extent that this public space is also a spiritual realm, there is manifest in it what the Romans called humanitas. By that they meant something that was the very height of humanness because it was valid without being objective. It is precisely what Kant and then Jaspers mean by humanitas. The valid personality which, once acquired, never leaves a man, even though all other gifts of body and and mind may succumb to the destructiveness of time. Humanitas is never acquired in solitude, and never by giving one's work to the public. It can be achieved only by one who has thrown his life and his person into the venture into the public realm, in the course of which he risks revealing something which is not subjective and which, for that very reason, he can, he can neither recognize nor control. Thus, the venture into the public realm, in which humanitas is acquired, becomes a gift to mankind. When I suggest that the personal element which comes into the public realm with Jaspers is humanitas, I wish to imply that no one can help us as he can to overcome our distrust of this same public realm to feel what honor and joy it is to praise one we love in the hearing of all. For Jaspers has never shared the general prejudice of cultivated people, that the bright light of publicity makes all things flat and shallow, that only mediocrity shows up well in it, and that therefore the philosopher must keep his distance from it. You will recall Kant's opinion, that the touchstone for determining whether the difficulty of a philosophical essay is genuine or mere vapors of cleverness, may be found in its susceptibility to popularization. Jaspers, who in this respect, as indeed in every other, is the only successor Kant has ever had, has, like Kant, more than once left the academic sphere and its conceptual language to address the general reading public. Moreover, he has three times once shortly before the Nazis came to power in his Man in the Modern Age, 1933, and immediately after the downfall of the Third Reich, right, in his book The Question of German Guilt, and now in The Atom Bomb and the Future of Man, intervened directly in public in political questions of the day. Okay, so that's a long sentence with like this huge parenthetical where she lists out these three books. But she's saying that he's made three decisive ventures into the public to talk about political questions of the day, which is very much like not the thing that your average philosophy professor does. And she's saying most philosophy professors have this sort of bias or sort of cynical hatred of the public. They don't believe that anything good can come of speaking in the public. And she admires the fact that Jasper's As a philosophy professor and psychiatrist and literary critic, he has PhDs in all three, I think, makes a break from this cynical tradition and says, no, I'm going to speak on the situation and intervene in a way that can be communicated to any reading adult. Jaspers' affirmation of the public realm is unique because it comes from a philosopher and because it springs from the fundamental conviction underlying his whole activity as a philosopher, that both philosophy and politics concern everyone. This is what they have in common. This is the reason they belong in the public realm where the human person and his ability to prove himself are what counts. The philosopher, in contrast to the scientist, resembles the statesman in that he must answer for his opinions, that he is held responsible. The statesman, in fact, is in the relatively fortunate position of being responsible only to his own nation, whereas Jaspers, at least in all his writings after 1933, has always written as if to answer for himself before all of mankind. It's that internationalist spirit that he is cultivating. It's this internationalist big other that he is assuming in his audience. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't bring in big other, maybe that just complicates it, but he's assuming an audience that is internationalist, at least in spirit. For him, responsibility is not a burden and it has nothing whatsoever to do with moral imperatives. Rather, it flows naturally out of an innate pleasure to making manifest in clarifying the obscure and illuminating the darkness. His affirmation of the public realm is in the final analysis only the result of his loving light and clarity. He has loved light so long that it has marked his whole personality. In the works of a great writer, we can almost always find a consistent metaphor peculiar to him alone in which his whole work seems to come to a focus. One one such metaphor in Jasper's work is the word clarity. Existence is clarified by reason. The modes of encompassing, on one hand our mind which encompasses everything that occurs to us, on the other hand the world which encompasses us, the being in by which we are, all of this is brought to light by reason. Reason itself, finally, its affinity to truth, is verified by its breadth and lightness. Whatever stands up to light and does not dissolve in vapors under its brightness partakes in humanitas. To take it upon oneself to answer before mankind for every thought means to live in that luminosity in which oneself and everything one thinks is tested. Long before 1933, Jaspers was what is called famous in the way other philosophers are too, but only in the course of the Hitler period and especially in the years afterward did he become a public figure in the full sense of the word. Nor was this, as one might imagine, due solely to the circumstances of the time which first, forc- which first forced him into the obscurity of the persecuted, and then made him the symbol of changed times and attitudes. Insofar as the circumstances had anything to do with it, they only thrust him into the place in which he belonged by nature, into the full light of world opinion. The process was not that he first suffered something then proved himself in his ordeal, and finally, when the worst came to worst, represented something like the other Germany, you know, like the open-minded, inclusive, universalist kind of side of Germany. No, no, that's not it. In this sense, he represented nothing at all. He has always stood entirely alone and was independent of all groupings, including the German resistance movement. The magnificence of this position, which is sustained solely by the weight of the person, is precisely that without representing anything but his own existence, he could provide assurance that even in the darkness of total domination in which whatever goodness there may still remain becomes absolutely invisible and therefore ineffective, even then reason can be annihilated only if all reasonable men are actually, literally slaughtered. It was self-evident that he would remain firm in the midst of catastrophe but that the whole thing could never become even a temptation for him. This, which is less self-evident, was his inviolability. And to those who knew of him, it meant far more than resistance and heroism. It meant a confidence that needed no confirmation, an assurance that in times in which everything could happen, one thing could not happen. What Jaspers represented then, when he was entirely alone, was not Germany, was, but, but, but what was left of humanitas in Germany. It was as if he alone in his inviolability could illuminate that space which reason creates and preserves between men. And as if the light and breadth of this space survive even if only one man were to remain in it. Not that this was actually so or even could have been so. Jaspers has often said, and she quotes, the individual by himself cannot be reasonable." In this sense he was never alone, nor did he think very highly of such solitude. The humanitas, whose existence he guaranteed, grew from the native region of his thought, and this region was never unpopulated. What distinguishes Jaspers is that he is more at home in this region of reason and freedom, knows his way about it with greater sureness than others who may be acquainted with it, but cannot endure living constantly in it. Because his existence was governed by the passion for light itself, he was able to be like a light in the darkness, glowing from some hidden source of luminosity. There is something fascinating about a man's being inviolable, contemptible, unswayable. If we wished to explain this in psychological and biographical terms, We might perhaps think of the home Jaspers came from, his father and mother, still closely linked to the high-spirited and strong-minded Frisian peasantry who possessed a sense of independence quite uncommon in Germany. While freedom is more than independence, and it remained for Jaspers to develop out of independence the rational consciousness of freedom in which man experiences himself as given to himself. But the sovereign naturalness A certain certain cheerful recklessness, as he himself sometimes put it, with which he loves to expose himself to the currents of public life, while at the same time remaining independent of all the trends and opinions that happen to be in vogue, is probably due also to that indigenous self-assurance, or at any rate, has sprung from it. He need only dream himself, as it were, back into his personal origins and then out again into the breadth of humanity To convince himself, even in isolation, he does not represent a private opinion, but a different, still hidden, public view, a footpath, as Kant put it, which someday no doubt will widen out into a great highway. Right, so I mean, you got to think, at the time of totalitarianism, obviously the sensible position is to take, take on that of the lesser evil. It's either this way. Or it's that way. That is the totalitarian frame of all out world war. You have to take the side of the lesser evil. If you do not, you are the worse evil. You're a representative of the worse evil. She's saying that Kant uses this idea of creating a footpath for humanity, and you might be alone in doing it, but if you keep in mind, could others walk this? Is this a path? that could become a third option, and you walk it resolutely and you stay loyal to that idea, then it's one that can become a great highway. And she thinks that Jaspers is the only person since Kant to have a life dedicated to truth, reason, and philosophy that doesn't get caught up in this game of cynical condemnation and disregard towards all things public, while at the same time refusing the double blackmail of lesser evils. There can be be danger in such unerring certainty of judgment and sovereignty of mind. Not to be exposed to temptations can lead to inexperience, or at any rate, to lack of experience with the realities that any given period has to offer. And truly, what could be further from the experiences of our time than the high-spirited independence in which Jasper's has always been at home, the cheerful unconcern for what people say and think, this spirit is not even in rebellion against the conventions, because the conventions are always recognized as such, never taken seriously as standards of conduct. What could be further removed from our eridus soup soupcon? I mean, I don't know what the f- some Latin I think, and she in parentheses says. Nathalie Sarut, that doesn't help. So, what could be further removed from our something than the confidence which deeply underlies this independence, the secret trust in man and the humanitas of the human race? All right, I'll do it. I'll pull up a definition of this air de soukhan or whatever and see what we can find. Okay, according to Merriam Webster, soup offered by a restaurant. <laughs> it's a soup. A soup offered by a restaurant on a particular day. <laughs> okay, well, this doesn't help us at all because I already thought it sounded like soup can. All right, whatever. Arendt, you fucked us over on that one. What's with academics always talking about? Even Even she talking about talking to the public assumes an audience of people who know Latin. Come on. And since we are already examining subjective psychological matters, Jaspers was 50 years old when Hitler came to power. At this age, the overwhelming majority of people have long since ceased to add to their experiences and intellectuals in particular have usually become so hardened in their opinions that in all real events, they can only perceive corroboration of these opinions. Jaspers reacted to the decisive events of these times which he had no reason which he had no more foreseen than anyone else and for which he was possibly even less prepared than many other persons neither by retreating into his own philosophy nor by negating the world nor by falling into melancholy after 1933 that is after the completion of his three-part philosophy and again after 1945 after completion of his book on truth he embarked on what we might call new eras of productivity. Unfortunately, this phrase suggests the renewal of vitality that sometimes occur in men of great talent. But what is so magnificent about Jaspers is that he renews himself because he remains unchanged, as linked with the world as ever and following current events with unchanging keenness and capacity for concern. The great philosophers, just as much as the atom bomb, these are both book titles, lies wholly within the sphere of our most recent experience. This comp- this contemporaneity, or rather this living in the present, continuing into so advanced an age. Ah, fuck. See, I messed up my scroll. Yeah, so these two books, The Great Philosophers and The Atom Bomb, um, lie wholly within the sphere of our most recent experience. This, co- this contemporariness, or like the modernness, um, which he also says, rather, this living in the present, continuing into so advanced an age, is like a stroke of luck, which wipes out the question of just deserts. You must think, wait, of just deserts? Question of just deserts? The contemporaneity, or rather, this living in present, in the present, continuing into so advanced an age, is like a stroke of luck, which wipes out the question of just deserts it's not deserts like you know sweets. that's like deserts like is is she saying like deserts of is that like saying a desert of the real but she means more like a desert of justice like a place where there is no justice or what anyone else have any ideas feel free to chime in or comment later anyway i'll keep going It was thanks to this same good fortune that Jaspers could be isolated in the course of his life but could not be driven into solitude. That good fortune is based on a marriage in which a woman who is his peer has stood at his side ever since his youth. If two people do not succumb to the illusion that the ties binding them have made them one, they can create a world anew between them. Certainly for Jaspers this marriage has never been merely a private thing. It has proved that two people of different origins, Jasper's wife is Jewish, could create between them a world of their own. And from this world in miniature, he has learned, as from a model, but is essential for the whole realm of human affairs. Within this small world, he unfolded and practiced his incomparable faculty for dialogue, splendid precision of his way of listening the constant readiness to give a candid account of himself, the patience to linger over a matter under discussion, and above all, the ability to lure what is otherwise passed over in silence into the area of discourse, to make it worth talking about. Thus, in speaking and listening, he succeeds in changing, widening, sharpening, or as he himself would beautifully put it, in illuminating. In this space, forever illuminated anew by his speaking and listening thoughtfulness, Jaspers is at home. This is the home of his mind because it is a space in the literal sense of the word, just as the ways of thinking taught by his philosophy are ways in the the word's original meaning, paths that open up a piece of otherwise unexplored ground. Jaspers' thought is spatial because it forever remains in reference to the world and the people in it, not because it is bound to any existing space. In fact, the opposite is the case, because his deepest aim is to create a space in which the humanitas of man can appear pure and luminous. Thought of this sort, thought of this sort, always related closely to the thoughts of others, is bound to be political even when it deals with things that are not in the least political. For it always confirms that Kantian enlarged mentality, which is the political mentality par excellence. In order to explore the space of humanitas, which had become his home, Jaspers needed the great philosophers, and he has splendidly repaid them for their help, so to speak, by establishing with them a realm of the spirit, in which they once more appear as speaking persons, speaking from the realm of the shades, who, because they have escaped from temporal limitations can become everlasting companions in the things of the mind. I wish I could give you some conception of the freedom, the independence of thought, that was required to establish this realm of the spirit. For it was essential above all to abandon the chronological order hallowed by tradition, in which there appeared to be a succession, a consistent sequence, with one philosopher handing the truth on to the next. Granted, this tradition had lost the validity of its contents for us some time ago, but the temporal pattern of handing down, of following upon the other, nevertheless seemed to us so compelling that without its aridnes thread, we felt as if we were straying helplessly about in the past, utterly unable to orient ourselves. In this predicament, with the whole relationship of modern man to his past at stake, Jaspers converted the the succession in time into a spatial juxtaposition so that nearness and distance depend no longer on the centuries which separate us from a philosopher, but exclusively on the freely chosen point from which we enter this realm of the spirit, which will endure and expand as long as there are men on earth. So I think it goes without saying for a lot of us, that spirit is not being meant in a wooey way here. That this has its sense in that German word that "geist," which is also the uh, word for spirit that can be used for mind, but which really doesn't have anything to do with the American sense of spirit or the American sense of mind, except for in so far as the American sense of these things is a sort of demune watered down uh derivative uh thing that presupposes what philosophers are dealing with okay but insofar as there's a person willing to stand their ground and interrogate things and appeal to others in a reasonable way that is more set on illuminating and clarifying a situation than just convincing people of a predetermined opinion. Insofar as that exists, this human thing still exists, she's saying. And she's saying that there's like this space, this dimension that one enters where it's not like the philosophers we should take most seriously are the ones that are closest to us in temporality in a chronological way. She's talking about how everybody felt the need to study philosophy chronologically. And it was basically like a history of mistakes where, you know, this person comes along and says, I've solved all the problems that everyone else failed to see. And then the next person comes along and says, Oh, but actually you missed all of these things and you're wrong too. And then, so we have to read history this way. No, Uh, she's saying that Jaspers brings us into a different way of thinking about the philosophical dimension that is uh, not chronological, but is instead it's like you do philosophy in a room full of all of these other philosophers. They might be dead, but they're all there. And you have to consider their standpoint, what they would bring to the table, how they would see things. And so it's not, it's never just you versus the people who are currently alive trying to judge a situation or figure out what's true, but it's instead you trying to clarify an issue or make sense of some phenomenon or dynamic. And you're doing it in dialogue with everyone who's had a significant role to play in the life of the mind, as well as people who are currently alive or will be in the future, who have an interest in illumination for its own sake, right? This realm in which Jaspers is at home and to which he has opened the ways for us, does not lie in the beyond, and is not utopian. It is not of yesterday nor of tomorrow. It is of the present and of this world. Reason has created it and freedom reigns in it. It is not something to locate and organize. It reaches into all the countries of the globe and into all their pasts. And although it is worldly, it is invisible. It is the realm of humanitas which everyone can come to out of his own origins. Those who enter into it recognize one another, for then they are are like sparks brightening to a more luminous glow, dwindling to invisibility, alternating and in constant motion. The sparks see one another, and each flames more brightly because it sees others, and can hope to be seen by them. And then this is the last... Paragraph before we close out the reading portion of the stream today. Um, And so I will be curious if anybody who's in the uh, live side of this call has any thoughts on any of this. And then um, I will also check live stream chat to see if anybody has tuned in. Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. And I'll do a little bit of the week in review update as well. Anne will be joining me for that. But also, Nance and Andrew, you've both been a part of the last week of operations. You're part of the Theory Underground community. And so you'll also be welcome to participate in that sort of recap discussion. Here's the last paragraph She says, I speak here in the name of those whom Jaspers once led into this realm. What was then in their hearts, Adelbert Stifter has expressed more beautifully than I can. Now there, and she quotes, now there sprang forth astonishment at the man and there rose up a great praise of him end quote end of speech good job arent good good uh laudatio thank you for that all right um what do we want to do here Besides the fact that the exegetical reading sessions is a thing now, and there's going to be regular, not routine, but regular excerpts and clips of those exegetical readings coming out, um, I, I, I do want to touch on that so we can review, you know, hey, idea of the university, it's been going on, what's new there? I mean, I lectured, Brian lectured. Uh, I think it was interesting. There was a great conversation, one of the best quality conversations that's occurred in the last few weeks, for sure, on Saturday. And that is available to anyone who takes the Idea of the University course, which is a course... Uh, I mean, this, this this course is really just Carl Jaspers' book, The Idea of the University, and us all applying it to our own experiences In the university outside of the university doing you know a bringing in critique of education uh critical pedagogy etc and so it's been a it's been a good time but there was also this week the second lectures on the pmc consciousness and ideology course which was that was a good time that was a that was a good lecture um elton was lecturing on the first sort of theoretical treaties or the first part of the theoretical treaties written by uh, Barbara and John Ehrenreich, uh, which I did an exegetical reading of a couple weeks ago. And then I gave a lecture on the managerial revolution by James Burnham. And so I think that that was a really important thing. And I'm, I think that in order to have a basis in the discourse going forward, you will want to tune into that I think it's very important the the exegetical readings are almost always going to happen on Tuesday mornings and then the other dates and times are going to be a little bit more up in the air and dependent on my availability my availability in the week the patrons who are wanting to join and their availability in the week etc so I just have to say that uh, this first this week though is an exception and we're not going to be able to uh, do it on Tuesday morning. And and I don't know if you're there right now, but this would be a good time to tune in by voice because uh, we did talk a little bit last week about what was going on with the complications in Mexico.
1: Yeah, I am here. Um, yeah, I mean, basically... Like, to summarize what had happened, we showed up to Mexico, we told them, oh, we're gonna be here for five months, and then the border officer decided for whatever reason in her heart that she only wanted us to have 20 days to be here. Now, people have said, oh, you can just stay, like, no one's gonna check, no one cares. There have been other people who are like, oh, you should probably get that taken care of, because if they, like, if a border, or if the immigration like officers out and about ask for your papers and you don't have them and it says you're only supposed to be here for 20 days you could go to jail so we're like oh geez a lot of like conflicting messages and at the end of the day we just want to be here totally legally and so we went to the immigration office and sat there for two hours just like waiting you know i was all ready to explain the situation and people had told us oh they're gonna help you. They'll be able to help you. You'll get it all taken care of. Don't worry. Relax. Everything will be fine. And we go, wait there for like two and a half hours. And then we talk to them for three minutes and they go, mm, sorry, we can't help you. You were only given 20 days. Like basically they were like, you can go talk to the people at the airport. They might know, but like you were really only given 20 days to be here. And so we decided, okay, well, we can either risk being out and about like risk traveling around with like and potentially being caught which everyone says let's just bribe them but i don't know we could go to jail it's you know we're pretty white pale people we stayed out pretty easily here and so we decided the advice of another american who's living here who had to do the same thing one time we bought like 100 $50 round-trip tickets to fly to Tijuana tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Because there is a border bridge from Tijuana to the United States. And then that same day, like 15 hours later, we have a flight back to Aguascalientes, which leaves at like midnight and arrives at like 9 a.m. with a layover in Mexico City. So... That's an adventure. That's why we will not be available on Tuesday morning for an uh, exegetical reading because we'll just be getting back into August Calientes. Probably tired, probably gonna go take a nap. Um, yeah, we don't know why this happened. Like, this is our first time in Mexico. I know they're kind of trying to do this to people who, um, and like who who abuse the 180 day no visa policy, who come and go and come and go. This is our first time here. I was ready to speak Spanish to them. No one asked us for any, like, proof of our plans. They just said, how long are you going to be here? Oh, about five months. Cool. 20 days. So, you know, we're dealing with it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's stressful. It's annoying. It's seemingly unnecessary. It's
1: costing us money that we weren't planning on spending.
0: Yeah, part of being here was to not be spending money that we don't have. And so it's a little bit more of a, oops, complication, got to deal with it, but whatever. Stuff happens, you know, whether you're living in the U.S. or here. But yeah, the person at the airport, though, what a fuck. Just what a, what a piece of shit. Like, no clarification. Like, we're like, oh yeah, we're going to be here till May. She was just like... 20 days. And she doesn't, she doesn't like put it 20 days in a receipt and then hand us the receipt that said 20 days. It's not like she looked at us and said, Oh, yeah, till May, cool. Well, you get 20 days. Deal with it. No, 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 no. It's nothing like that. It was just like, we thought we were good. She was like, Cool, you're good. And then, um, Ann, who's proactive and logistical, goes and like looks up the digital documentation like later after the fact and was like, uh, this says 20 days. And I was like, what? April work? What are you even looking at? What is this? And it's and it really is one of those things where I would have had no idea that I was here technically illegally if, if not for Anne. So thanks, Anne.
1: Anytime. Anytime.
0: All right. What else has happened this week? We can review Andrew and Nance. Chime in. What's up? Anything else that I left out?
1: you have been releasing videos with like you and Mikey and the Yeah,
0: of course. That's true, huh?
2: Yep. You got the yeah the Zizek series. That stuff that's stink. So, I really like uh, the Zizek one-on-one stuff.
0: Cool. You guys are visible now, by the way. Yeah. Uh. So you so say hello to stream. Hello, everybody. I'm
2: wearing a, a beanie just so y'all know, so you don't put in the chat. What's wrong with the uh, Master Signified Body's
0: hair? <laughs> was that Deathcon who said that shit? I, I think it was Deathcon. <laughs> I don't know if Deathcon's ever gotten a shout out, and Deathcon has given me so many solid comments in the past. And so it's so funny that Andrew's first, like, awareness of this person who's been a great youtube regular on my channel comes on to the in defense of what was it Wait, was the defense
2: no it was uh the stutz combo uh a critique of the the therapism
0: the young zizikian stutz yeah. conversation a, a instant and forever classic right
2: yeah that was a good one definitely
0: and even uh clint burnham
2: liked it yeah yeah, yeah. He, he recommended it to like a bunch of other his uh his uh colleagues uh that's pretty dope yeah thanks clint
0: uh so yeah anyway uh in that conversation andrew had joined by video and his uh he was wearing a beanie and death con's comment was what's what's wrong with andrew's hair (laughs) uh so it's become a bit of a joke. We always give Andrew shit now for whatever, whenever he's wearing a beanie. We're always like, what's wrong with your hair, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Zizek series, I, I cut it all down to like, uh, it's so, you know, I, if anyone was not aware for the last, uh, for the first month of Theory Underground's um, like really being like a thing where got right? an entity, like really saying, okay, things are, things are happening now. All aboard. Like, uh, I started putting out daily videos of intro to Lacan. And those came out every day of January until the entire, the entirety of like eight hours of introduction to Lacan was all up in the intro playlist. And then I've been doing the exact same thing with Intro to Zizek and his Theory of Ideology, which has been, it's been cool. It's been, I don't know, they're getting like on average between 100 and 300 views. I imagine that at least 20 people watch them through all the way and think that it's worthwhile. And so I'll keep doing it because it's really for the people who are trying to get a basis in Lacan and Zizek in a little bit more proactive of a way, a little bit more proactive of a way than you would perhaps get just watching video essays or just checking out conversations between Lacanians or Zizikians talking about stuff and definitely in a more accessible way than you would get from just listening to Zizik himself. Why Theory is a really good podcast for breaking this stuff down making it accessible and applying it to things but I have found that um, the good bits like the actual theoretically succinct bits are interspersed in a lot of other, more podcast-like conversations. And so if you just want the good bits, uh, that would require somebody going through the backlog of Y Theory and then clipping together all the parts that really narrow it down. And no one's done that yet, but I wanted to do that to my conversations with Mikey. Because I was like, okay, these conversations are canon. So I can't just keep them on the channel Even though they've got thousands of views, I'm not going to just keep them up on the channel in their raw old theory plebe form. Right. Because I've gone through transformations as a person as well as a channel. And uh, now there's actually like a different website associated with this entire project than was being promoted back in the day. And so I wanted to give it all like a... sort of continuity in ter- and and a modernization in terms of its aesthetic and its structure and I've added advertisements onto the end of every one of these videos they're the longest advertisements that you'll ever hear on YouTube cuz they're like each one is like 7 minutes long <laughs> but they are I mean it's not just an ad it's it's a, it's like it's not just a vision I'm giving you not just a insight into things to come with Theory Underground, but I'm also giving people a sense of how big of a project this really is. And I think I've said it before, but I didn't say it on the podcast. And because this is going out to the podcast, I'll say it right now. Part of the point, I'm hearing myself, by the way. Not sure why. Oh, it's Ann.
1: Oh, it's probably because of me.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, it's because I'm upstairs. So, but yeah, Ann, if you want to talk, just interject and I'll mute myself anytime. But, um... But what was I going to say? Oh, the point is to build up a nice little base right now, right? It's not about uh, reaching the masses. We're trying to recruit thousands of people right now. Um, it's more about building off of the ties that are already here, relationships that are already here, the stuff that's come about in really the last couple of years, and, and, and kind of bringing it all out in this way that as I was saying, is structured, has a sort of continuity. If if something is canon and people who are going to be involved in the future need to have that basis, then it needs to be rolled out this year. And that way, when we meet people on tour and they want to go through the backlog or go through the courses to get a foothold in the conversation and join in on the forums or the app uh, for Theory Underground, once the app is out, um, making sure all the pieces are in place. So, like, that's that's the first most important thing that I've been focusing on. But I've neglected the podcast, and so I want to apologize to the podcast side. I didn't know that there was actually any real people who listened to it until last week, because I think in one of the episodes I put out, I said, look, I don't even know if any of you are even listening to this. I don't even know if there is an actual podcast audience for this content. Uh, I know that there's it shows hundreds of views, but like I don't know who the heck they are, and they could be somewhat random, and who knows. Anyway point is I invited people from the podcast side to join the forum to introduce themselves in the public forum and we got at least one person who came and introduced himself and so it's real. There's actual people out there and this person is a worker who just listens from work and that's the goal. So I, I know I've got a few of you across the world today joining in from work through your headphones. And now I know that at least one of you is reliant on the podcast side of things. And so that makes me happy. It makes me feel like I've not been wasting the money that goes to, you know, keeping the podcast going. And so sorry I've neglected you all on the podcast side. There will be more stuff coming soon, including the interview with Todd McGowan on identity politics and universality, as well as the enjoyment right and left. Really, we're tying together uh, three of his books, all in one stream. And Mikey's making a lot of the connections because he read all three of those books. What was it, The Racist Fantasies, the other book that I'm missing there? So it's like, Enjoyment Right and Left, The Racist Fantasy, and Identity Politics and Universality. So, Todd McGowan, uh, wrote those three books. Mikey was, like, keen enough to be like, this is basically a trilogy. These three books really go together. And McGowan was like, that's fair and that's right. And so, it's kind of like they're unofficially three volumes of an idea. And we tease that out and clarify it and bring it all into relation with our current frustrations and interests concerning political change and everything like that. So uh, that's going to go up on the podcast and on the YouTube channel this week in the next couple of days here. And uh, I'm, I'm officially I finally did the work of getting the audio tracks for all of the intro to Zizik stuff so that those can start going up on the podcast as well. That's that's the update. So, Mexico, we're gonna hopefully have all of the the immigration, passport, visa, status issues solved uh, within the next two days, and then we'll be able to really like get to work. And uh, I think that's it.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> I'm excited for that uh, Todd McGowan discussion to drop.
0: That's gonna be sick. And then you all have another interview this week or was just was it that one? Oh, my conversation with ashley frowley um uh she got sick and so she was gonna do it anyway because she's amazing but i was like no just just for the love of god take it off right yeah wasn't it supposed to be friday or it was it thursday that was uh that was friday yeah but no it's okay. being it's being moved to later in the week next week so um That's actually one of the exegetical readings that we'll be doing, though, is in preparation for when I interview Ashley Frowley with Anne. And so uh, the exegetical reading will be from Christopher Lash's Haven in a Heartless World, which is a, you know, it's one of those texts that people reference, but they never really unpack it or say what's going on there. And it's one of those things where I think you just need to have a firsthand encounter Mm -hmm. with his voice with his approach, with how he's making sense of things. And, uh, it's, uh, it is an essential source for, uh, Daniel Tut, who you just had on your channel. Right. Yeah, we did. And, uh, he actually just dropped his, uh, discussion on, uh, like, Lash
2: biography, like a biography and then, like, his theoretical basis, uh, which is kind of funny that everybody just wants to talk about Lash now. <laughs> Syn- synchronicities. Um, but, I one thing that he points out, which, um, you know, I need to read Lash, but he's saying that, like, from his daughter who he interviewed, um, she's, like, carrying on his uh, kind of tradition of, like, uh, a historical analysis of America and the left and how Lash was Marxist till, you know, the day he died. But because of his history, he's like, yo, these certain uh, Trotskyist, um, you know, ideas for revolution just won't work. With the conditions of American society and how we're, you know, becoming more <clears throat> post-Fordist, etc. Like these old ideas are just outdated and we have to rethink things. So I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, there's 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 people who are like the left is dead and needs to be brought back, or people who are like the left is totally fucked and we have to find a way of salvaging it. And then there's people or there's people who are like, because of those things, or against the left or the left, you know, it, yeah, it just doesn't exist. So like there's these kind of, there's these different positions on that. And then there's, uh, I guess, people whose job today is telling us that everything is fine as long as we put our trust in them as our influencers and representatives. And something I've been saying about that is that their job is basically just to convince us that it's all there is a continuity, a coherence to the left that it's a real force in the world, and you know, keeping that 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 idea alive and trying to instantiate it with you know bringing it into dialogue with whatever's current in the news, so that we can all feel like, oh yeah, no, this thing exists. That's kind of the positions of different different uh, people on left tube, bread tube, theory tube, and. No, McGowan is a, he's not a post-leftist, but he, if you read his enjoyment right and left, by definition, he doesn't think that the left is left right now. He thinks that the left is right. He thinks that the left is fully caught up in a rightist form of enjoyment. So you have someone like Chris Catron come along and say, no, the left is dead, long live the left. We need to bring back the old left. Then you have someone like McGowan come along, he's not really convinced on the old left, but he's also like, no uh the left needs to do something because currently it is it, it it's fully caught up in this rightist form of enjoyment you know and so yeah i don't know there's something interesting there i think
2: that's actually really cool that you said that though uh because like even when you look at somebody like chris cartone that says we need to bring the old left back that is like blatantly nostalgic and that is a form of like marxist conservatism which doesn't see the sort of conditions of possibility for revolution whatever that may look like and that's why we have to think and that's why Zizek hate the guy or love the guy or maybe you just don't see his like Hegelian project as you know um, full of like utility for Marxism, Erichism or just the left in general uh, the reversal of uh, Marxist thesis on Feuerbach is important. That's why, you know, there's a lot of just act, act and never having like theoretical grounds, right? We have to think more, we have to interpret the world, not just change it because we keep trying to change it. And that's where we keep messing up. And McGowan's saying that the left is becoming more right in their enjoyment. And so you can kind of see the sort of dialectical split between two. It's like, they're pretty much the same, you know, person it's interesting
0: well i think i'm about to close this out and uh on the public side we'll keep having a conversation behind the scenes so to speak so uh you know if it these these community and review streams uh will also have a private conversation side i've decided and it's important because sometimes people just don't want to talk about stuff on stream and That doesn't mean it's not important and sometimes it might mean it's very important because we're all kind of straddling this line between public and private between objective as something that happens in the public, but also, you know, uh, flattens versus like this richer private, but that, that distinction has been destroyed in a lot of ways and is its own sort of fantasy and. And so we're all caught between public and private and trying to make sense of it. That's one of the reasons that I love Arendt is because she she can see that there's simulation, that there's simulacra, that there's performativity, that there's uh, artificiality, that there's flattening, that those things happen, you know, Uh, especially on YouTube, she said. Just kidding. Um, But she still maintains a sort of, dogged belief or hope in human potential to make a change by speaking truth in public. She said, even in that piece that we just read, she said that, she said, you know, it's weird with the Laudatio because like, you can't give a Laudatio if the person wasn't already great and that they haven't already been recognized as great. And so, you know, she's not coming out to tell people something that they don't know. She's telling something so she's telling everybody something that they already know about how great this person was. But she says that doesn't make it any less important. In fact, it can be the most important thing ever because if everybody knows something in private, but nobody has really articulated it very well in public, then in a sort of sense it hasn't been validated. In a sorts of, in a sort of sense it's like, "Oh, we all know this. Oh, we know it privately." And it hasn't been recognized, acknowledged or heard seen understood publicly and so you know I love that but before I close out I'll just say uh, the app complications have been many Uh, the biggest one being that whenever technical support responded to my ticket I wasn't getting an email until three days after the fact and then they would send me an email that said hey you had never responded to our response and I was like well why are you giving me an email in the first place I'm only getting an email after I don't respond What's going on here? You actually, email me. And so there is that problem, and i i think I got that worked out. But I've got three support tickets open, and and working through, um, getting these this app up and going. I said like two weeks ago in private to a couple of people, yeah, we could have it within forty-eight hours. Uh, it was technically possible, but it would have required none of the bugs occurring that are just like common technical support kind of bugs that you just got to work through. And so anyway, there is an app. It'll be in the app store on your preferred operating system for your phone in the near future. And uh, lastly, Mikey and I were invited on to the Zizek and So On podcast. So stay tuned for that. There will be two episodes on the Zizek and So On podcast. Uh, I think one of them might be behind a patron wall. I'm not sure. But it was a great honor, privilege, and enjoyable time being on with Michael from Zizek and so on. It's a really big podcast. It's a really big deal. But I wouldn't have gone on it for those reasons. I went on it because Michael is a really cool guy. And I've gotten to know him a little bit uh, through that discussion group they led a couple months ago. And we love him. He's a real homie. And so the conversation that we have, though, is going to be one I'm excited for you all to see because Mikey goes into a bunch of his biographical details that people don't usually get to hear, and it's all part of the lore. So we thought if that's going to be somewhere on the internet, it should be on that episode. So stay tuned for the Zizek and So On podcast featuring myself and Mikey. And with that, everybody, I hope you all have a beautiful rest of your day. I'm going to close out by playing something on the stream side that I don't think... You guys are going to be able to hear. Uh, so, in the in the Zoom call, we'll resume the conversation once that's finished playing. Right? You might be able to hear it, though. We'll see. Attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established. We are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's
1: up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming
0: to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or a facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism? pmc ideology self-help introduction to philosophy or the time energy critique of any of those things this speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the pacific northwest in mid-august the kansas city missouri area late august or early september philadelphia at the beginning of october and really we're going to be all over the area there hopefully so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state phoenix arizona mid-october in socal especially san diego late october i say especially san diego because we already have our guide for the san diego region what's the difference between a host a guide and a volunteer you ask well thanks for asking actually the volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom guest house or a place that we can park our van. So we can sleep in our van, we need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand, though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri, and he took me into Kansas City, and we had barbecue, and he took me to the mall, and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, But a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland, who took us around Katowice, Poland, and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything, and it was amazing. It It was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced and it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy whereas other people want to take you out and show you around and so if you're interested in being a volunteer host or guide we have a special form for that so please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you touch base with the local community and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff well we might be able to surprise you
2: when i saw that poster bolder in boise fucking idaho are you kidding me it was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer you know it really was And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in, that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off.
0: This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with and yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that all. Michael Downs' is gearing up to teach for they know not what they do by Slavoj Zizek is that putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Zizek, because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy. Having to work at a wage slave job. And so, if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations that already we've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations, um, and so thank you. And uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts, and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the University by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek, for they don't know what they do, dedicated for him. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like Discord. And so stay tuned because there is an app on the way. Thank you to our donors. If you want to donate, go to dairy-underground.com forward slash support. Thank you.